You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. In this episode, we'll be continuing the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Before we get started, I'd like to let you know you can find a lot more of this sort of storytelling at apweber.com. That's A-P-W-E-B-E-R dot com. In particular, my original sci-fi webcomic, Ion Grip. It's galactic espionage, Cold War era themes in a space opera setting. And as always, you can reach me at truesandhalftruths at gmail.com. Let me know your recommendations for games, books, podcasts, and the like. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take the time to rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot. Okay, let's get to it. Last time, Woodrow was summoned to Riley Castle, where he found his father deep in a dispute with Sir Raymond and the Stone family concerning the Moonshadow. When news arrived of an explosion somewhere in the city, Raymond insists the island is under attack by an army of monsters called Grimbles. Though he has his doubts, Woodrow's father goes with Raymond to confront this threat, leaving Woodrow behind with the Stone family. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moonshadow, first book of the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Part 2 The Fall of Riley Island Chapter 8 They waited in silence for several minutes. No one invited Woodrow to sit at the table, so he stood fidgeting just within the ring of firelight. From the courtyard, came the sound of the guards' boots on the cobblestones as they hurried about, securing the castle. What are you looking at? Miss Fanny said sharply. Woodrow glanced away from the rafters, where Tamberline was stalking the shadows. Nothing, he said. Are we going to sit here all night? The women ignored his question. A moment later, a distant boom rattled the goblets on the table. Lord Edgar seemed not to notice, and the women just exchanged exasperated looks. I suppose that's Milo, Dame Nora sighed. I warned you not to rely on him, said Fanny. If we all heeded your pessimistic advice, this family would have far less fortune, said Hannah. It was a calculated risk, to be sure, but a necessary one. But now... We're left to figure out how to proceed with the plan now that our darling brothers have jumped the gun. Franny fretted angrily. We're not ready. Raymond was supposed to have possession of the ship before it all began. We'll have to improvise, Dame Nora told her daughters. Then it's settled, Hannah said, and pushed away from the table. She stood and walked behind Lord Edgar's seat. The old man absently chewed at a thumbnail. She pulled his head back by a handful of his thin, white hair, jerking the thumb from his teeth. 
Woodrow didn't see from where Hannah produced the dagger. She dug the blade in just below his ear and yanked it, haltingly, across his throat. The old man, who had been so absent before, now in the last moments of his life, looked to fully possess his wits. He gripped the dark gash in his neck and struggled to breathe, black blood gurgling from his gaping mouth. The stone women watched him die without sympathy. At this point in Woodrow's life, he had never seen anything so truly evil. Later, he would become better prepared to respond to such villainy. Indeed, he would get quite adept at it. But at the moment of Lord Edgar's murder, Woodrow froze. All the women looked at the boy. Hannah spoke first. She set the blade down on the table, lifted a napkin lying next to Lord Edgar's lifeless hand, wiped the blood from her fingers, and said, What a terrible thing you've done, young man. Imagine Mr. Compton's own son in league with the Grimbles. Woodrow looked at Dame Nora. Her face was grave, but her eyes were smiling. Soon, she said, as if talking to a young child about some commonplace thing. We shall have to scream. We shall have to call for the guards and appear most distraught. By then, I cannot say how long you have, but by then, you will want to be far removed from this castle. Run, Woodrow told himself. But where? The castle was on lockdown, and if there really were Grimbles bent on murder out in Rileytown, leaving the protection of the castle walls would be no safer for him either. He remained frozen by indecision until Tamberline leapt down from the rafters onto the table. The Stone family all jumped out of their seats in astonishment. Tamberline hissed, then bounded off the table to the door that led from the hall into the interior of the castle's main building. She clawed at the wooden door, then turned and hissed at Woodrow. The sharp sound broke Woodrow's trance, and now panic pounded at the inside of his chest. Run, he told himself again, and this time he did. He felt his legs carry him to the door Tamberline seemed to be urging him through. He opened it and found himself running down an ancient stone corridor. Tamberline pulled ahead of him as though she intended to lead the way, and he followed her. From behind, he heard the stone women screaming. Tamberline was well ahead now. In a second, he lost sight of her completely. He turned a corner and saw stone steps leading down. Tamberline's tail disappeared into the stairwell's shadows. From somewhere back the way he'd come, he heard a tumult of rushing feet and urgent voices. He plunged down the dark stairs. For a moment, there was no sign of the guard's pursuit. Then the sound of boots clapping against the stone steps came echoing down the stairwell. The hazy glow of lamplight appeared in front of Woodrow. He burst, panting, into a ring of dim light. In a second, he took in the room, a cellar. There was a stone well with some flimsy wood planks partially covering it. A lamp sat near the edge of the well, as if someone had recently drawn water and left it still burning. Tamberline crouched in the dim lamplight. The great cat looked over her shoulder at Woodrow, then disappeared into the well's black mouth. 
Woodrow stepped to the edge and peered down. Darkness. Boots pounded against the stone steps louder and louder. He could hear the voices of his pursuers. He dared not look behind him. He took a breath and then kicked over the lamp. As the inky darkness closed in around him, he stepped over the lip of the well and toppled into its gullet. The confused voices of his pursuers groping around in the dark faded into the distance above him as he fell. Tamberline, having eyes suited to darkness, almost certainly fell more gracefully than Woodrow, who landed but first in a tangle of thick tree roots. He slid downward along the surface of the intertwining branches, then tumbled off and fell through another length of open darkness until he splashed into a shallow pool of mud and water. Tam-Tam, he gasped. He felt her whisk by him and rolled over to look in the direction she went. There were flames somewhere, dancing in the darkness, through a passage, around a corner, somewhere. He struggled up, stumbling in the direction of the light. He could hear water trickling. It got louder. Rock and mud struck him in the face. He had run into the cavern wall. He felt along it and continued on. An orange glow appeared in front of him, and he rounded a bend to find Tamberline crouched down at the mouth of the tunnel, her figure a silhouette of black against the firelight outside. He knelt beside her. The cavern they were in, carved by an underground stream, seemed to have long ago broken in on Riley Town's sewer system. He could see the arched brick passage intersecting the mud tunnel where he was. Someone had cast torches on the ground at intervals, tracking in either direction down the sewer tunnel. Woodrow scratched Tamberline's neck. I wonder if Grimble's left those torches. They're supposed to live underground, right? He craned his neck out into the passage. I don't see anybody, he whispered. I guess this is our way out. He took a tentative step into the light. Tamberline followed. I think the city is this way, Woodrow pointed. Let's go. They tiptoed along. Soon they began to see graded openings above, storm drains from the street. They crossed several bisecting passages, cautiously peering around each corner into the darkness, then dashing. Eventually we'll need to find a way up, Woodrow told Tamberline. They continued on. What's that? Woodrow whispered. Tamberline halted beside him, her ears twitching and straining. Up there. Woodrow pointed at the grate above their heads. He took a few steps back and ran at the curved tunnel wall. He made two big strides up it and jumped toward the grate. He caught the bars in his hands and hung there. From the direction of the street outside the grate, he heard a malevolent tittering sound. He pulled himself up to look at the street from foot level. He saw a narrow back street lit by pale moonlight. A man stood there. He was fashionably dressed, wearing a cravat and a top hat. He seemed somewhat familiar to Woodrow, but his face was blotted out by shadow. The man was looking in Woodrow's direction, perhaps at someone or something standing above the grate. That cruel tittering again. The Grimbles, Woodrow reasoned. That man is in danger. Woodrow almost called out a warning, but the man held his fingers to his lips and emitted a brief, sharp whistle. A short figure emerged from somewhere beside Woodrow. Its skin 
was gray, its face broad and long like the snout of a beast. Beneath a tuft of bristled hair, a pair of long, pointed ears stuck out. It glanced around mischievously, black, near-set eyes glistening from beneath its broad brow. Woodrow had never seen one before, but from the books he'd read and the stories he'd heard, he knew instantly that this creature was a Grimble. His grip began to give way. He looked for the man, but he disappeared. The Grimble scampered off into the shadows where the man had stood. Woodrow dropped to the ground. We have to get up there, he told Tamberline. Tamberline studied him for a moment. Finally, she trotted past him and continued down the passage. Woodrow followed. A tremor rattled from above, pitching dust down over their heads. What's going on up there? He broke out into a run. Tamberline matched his pace. Ahead, the passage terminated, intersected by another tunnel. Against the dead wall, Woodrow could just make out the rungs of a ladder cemented into the bricks for maintenance access. He began to think about what he would do up top. Get his bearings first, climb a tree or onto the roof of a building if he could, look around at the sky for the moon shadow. Perhaps his father had already gotten to it and was on his way back to the castle. He'd have to flag it down somehow. One of the torches in the sewer might do. If he couldn't see the moon shadow, he'd have to make for home. His fantasy was broken by a shriek of maniacal laughter. He grabbed Tamberline by the back of her neck and pulled her into the darkness of an adjacent passage, then peered out around the corner. Dead ahead, a band of Grimbles was not even bothering to creep. They were dragging a cart through the intersecting tunnel at the end of the passage. The cart was full of barrels almost as big as the Grimbles themselves. A cord connected all the barrels. The Grimbles stopped right in front of the ladder Woodrow had hoped to climb to the surface. We make a chain, one wearing a skull as a hat said in a shrill voice. Stagner, you go first. Then you, 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 and you. I stay here and light it. Better hurry back, or get the hell out of the way. The underlings hopped up and down, tittering with excitement. They made quick work of emptying the cart and carrying its contents up the ladder onto the street above. When there was just one Grimble left with the commander at the cart, Woodrow turned to Tamberline. He was going to say, We'd better find another way around. But Tamberline was gone. He looked back down the length of the main passage. He could just make out the figure of a great cat creeping through the shadows between rings of torchlight, getting closer to the Grimbles. What are you waiting for? demanded Skullhat. Uh, boss? said the remaining Grimble minion as he hefted the barrel over his shoulder. Do you see a great big puss coming down the passage? Skullhat turned and held a torch aloft, squinting. Tamberline sprang into the light and took the commander by the throat, dark blood spurting as her teeth sank in. The other Grimble dropped his barrel, emitting a series of short, escalating screams as if the horror of what he saw was increasingly dawning on him. His trembling, gnarled hand went to his belt for the axe hanging there. Woodrow was about to shout a warning about the Grimble with the axe when he saw that the downed commander had dropped his torch directly on the fuse running between the barrels. In another half-second, it began to sparkle and spit flames. Run! Woodrow shouted. He didn't hesitate long enough to see if Tamberline obeyed, but turned to run himself. 
The blast felt like a sunburn carried on storm winds. It sounded more terrible than thunder. He stumbled headlong and rolled and rolled. Pebble-sized bits of stone pelted him. When he stopped rolling, he huddled on the ground with his arms sheltering his head and neck. The tunnel shook again, and over the steady ringing in his ears, he heard another blast from above ground. The earth boomed and quaked again and again, subsiding into the distance. Woodrow opened his eyes to a chalky darkness. It was quiet, save for the ringing in his ears. He cleared his throat, half out of pure curiosity about whether or not he would hear the sound of it. He did hear it, but the ringing persisted. His body ached as he pushed himself up. He waved a hand at the smoke and dust in the air and covered his nose with the collar of his shirt. An orange haze swirled ahead. Fire! He wondered if he should go toward it or away. He wondered where Tamberline was. He wondered what it looked like above ground after the explosions. The ladder's that way, he thought, toward the fire. It was getting hard to breathe. Better move. Have to get topside. He pushed through the haze till he came to the spot where he thought the tunnel intersection had been. The roof had caved in. Now it was a mound of dirt and cobblestones and bricks. Pools of some shimmering liquid burned in the cracks beneath the debris. What was in those barrels? He wondered, horrified. He thought to call out for Tamberline, but decided he should see if there was any danger outside first. That's when the screaming started. Above the ringing in his ears, he could hear the voice of a woman, high and shrill. He scrambled up the mound toward the street. When he emerged into the open air, he didn't recognize anything. The buildings around him were jagged, broken shells. Tongues of flame lapped at the night sky. He could make out the street, what was left of it, and there in the middle, soot-smeared and ragged, knelt the woman whose wails filled the air. He was almost overcome with the urge to join her, the way one toddler might take up the cry of another toddler, without knowing why. Woodrow, at least, knew why. Looking around at the devastation gave him reason enough to fall into hysterics. He hugged himself and fought the urge. Just as he had almost worked up enough courage to go to the woman, to try to calm her, to tell her to follow him to safety, he heard a crack ring out from some indistinct location. Her body jerked head first to one side, slumped over, and lay still. Woodrow leapt into the shadow of one standing wall of an otherwise devastated house. Someone shot her with a firearm, he realized. He wanted to scream at the brute that had done it, to use every curse word he could recall, but he knew better. The shooter had not seen him, but should that fact change, he, too, would be a corpse. He leaned against the bricks, looking around for something familiar. Finally, he saw it. The city wall. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme song was provided by Josiah Martins and original music for this episode by Mackenzie Stubbert. I'd like to thank an anonymous patron 
today. Fela Haken, who is a cat person and bell enthusiast, judging by their avatar. There's, there's no way I could possibly know who this person really is, but I do know this. Chris Wilson is a good man and an excellent dungeon master. Maybe you noticed last week there wasn't a new episode. Uh, maybe you can hear it in my voice. I've been a little bit sick. Just a cold. But I'm not sure when the next episode will um, be released. I do want I want to make sure my voice recovers. Um, I really want these episodes to stand up uh, over time. So I don't want to do the next chapter uh, with, you know, sounding congested and sick. So uh, I'm just going to let my voice recover for um, as long as it takes. You know, it might just be a week late or, you know, if I'm feeling up for it, we'll have a new episode on Tuesday. So sorry for the delay. As always, consider liking, sharing or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can always support me, AP Weber, on Patreon. But in any case, please join me again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths.